0: All right, guys, on this week's episode, it's Bama Beef as we bring on Erin Beasley with the Alabama Cattlemen's Association to tell her story, as well as dive into some hyper specific policy issues that are extremely engaging. We have an incredible culture here in the state of Alabama, but our politics and public policy don't reflect the people of Alabama. Media drives culture. Culture is what drives politics and public policy. Welcome, everyone, to 1819 News, the podcast. I'm Brian Dawson, CEO of 1819 News and host of this here podcast, where we are in pursuit of a free and flourishing Alabama every single week. Got another great episode for you today, bringing on Erin Beasley. She is the executive vice president of the Alabama Cattlemen's Association. We're going to be hearing from her, a little bit about her story, as we always ask any guest, tell tell us your story, a little bit about her, what she does, and then what the association does. We're also going to talk about the museum. I mean, there's no way we can talk about the museum. So we'll talk about that, and then we're going to talk policy stuff. They're an association. That means they're down there lobbying uh, on behalf of their members, and so we want to talk to them uh, and just ask a couple questions. And so we'll jump into that. But before we do, please, whatever podcasting app you're listening on, go subscribe, like, follow, click the bell, whatever it takes to be getting notifications uh, every time we publish a podcast or content so that you don't miss anything. I know you guys got crazy FOMO for 1819 News, the podcast, Fear of Missing Out. Let that fear of missing out drive you to hit the subscribe button or follow button or like button or whatever button it is on your podcasting app. Go there. Please do that. And then share this on social media. That's the big ask. we would love for you guys to go become a member and give us money. Uh, but just as valuable is you guys sharing our content so we can get out to as many people as possible. So please do that. And then if you do want to become a member, 1819 news the podcast or oh, so, you know 1819news.com not the podcast let me make it more confusing for you 1819news.com go there uh, at the top of the website it says become a member click the button membership start as little as five dollars a month you'll get cool merch with that and also access to behind the scenes content though i don't think we'll be doing a behind the scenes on this one this one's a pretty straightforward podcast um see so our behind the scenes we get real political, and we crazy conspiracy theories and all that kind of stuff. And so we save that for our our paid members. But we'll just do a normal podcast and you keep your job. It's gonna be great.
1: That sounds like a good day for me, Brian. <laughs>
0: so all right. Well that will uh my spiel is over. We'll jump into the the conversation and the content. So Aaron, thank you so much uh for joining me. Did you come from Montgomery to come up here? Yeah, I just you know, yeah.
1: quick trip up sixty five. Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah. I'm glad you're here. I do that often. I live in Watumpkin, and oh, so okay. our offices are up here. But the next three days, I'm going to be down in Baldwin County and Mobile mm-hmm. County, and so I'm just kind of all over the place, just
1: up and down the yeah. interstate. I yeah, I feel you. I commute 40 minutes yeah. on 85, so I, okay. I feel you on that.
0: Are you like coming from Shorter, or where are you? Notice Olga, so Notice just Olga. other side of I'm Shorter. Familiar. Yeah, yeah. Uh, my son played football in Tallahassee in Real Town. Oh yeah, and played, uh-huh. so
1: yeah, yeah, we go to church in Real Town.
0: Okay, so. see, I like that's, that's a good area, good yeah. people over there. Okay. Well good stuff. Um so you are the executive vice president of the Alabama Cattlemen's Association. How long have you been there?
1: So I've worked at the Cattlemen's for 13 years oh, wow. and I've been in my current role this is uh, year 7 actually. Oh, okay. Yeah.
0: See, I don't know why someone said there's someone new and but, Well uh,
1: probably so my predecessor uh that I work for for half the time there. Um he was there over 30. So I think okay. for at least 20 years I'll be the new person there. there you go. The
0: new <laughs> the new lady. Okay. Well, um yeah, so if it's interesting obviously I think to me one of the most uh important things uh, that we need to focus on that people that they, they don't think about. They go to the store, they get their food. They don't understand how where their food comes from. They don't understand all that goes into it. They don't understand all these things and we're seeing i think you saw it firsthand what happened to the poultry or chicken industry with what's happened with you know what they're doing with the the chicken houses and how the corporations have come in and it's just it's crazy and i know that everyone i talk to in the the beef industry really hopes that it doesn't go the way that the chicken industry has and so uh, i think you guys have a very important job to do and i think with uh, the here goes my tinfoil hat conspiracy theories. The way things are headed uh in, in this current culture and political moment, food sourcing is gonna it's gonna be a big deal. And so
1: food is the single most important thing that you know we worry about. If yeah. you don't have food security, then you have a national disaster on your yeah. hands. So uh, you know, being members of the food community and being a part of agriculture and representing those specifically in the beef cattle industry is is very important to our society. Yeah. I agree.
0: Awesome. So, um, talk a little bit about your story. Where are you from? Where you grew up? And how in the world did you get into the Cattlemen's Association? Oh,
1: that's a that's a, the, a loaded question in itself. <laughs> um, I'm I'm a transplant to Alabama, so okay, I, me I, too. I I didn't grow up here. Um, yeah, ain't I,
0: from around here. That's I ain't from say. around
1: here, but it's been home forever yeah. for around 20 years, so it feels like home now. But I, I grew up um, in Jacksonville, Florida. Okay. Uh, so graduated from there. Um, moved to Alabama to go to Auburn. And so I've, I graduated from there. I got a, a bachelor's degree in animal science with uh, specifically in the meat science area. And I graduated in 2008. So we all know what happened mm-hmm. in 2008. Real good economy. Really tough economy. <laughs> so um, luckily I had a chance uh, to get some graduate school paid for. So I stayed on for another two years and did a master's in, in meat science. Um,
0: and where did you say you went?
1: I went to Auburn. Um,
0: yeah, um, so I was the, in the, the Cal Co-
1: College. Cal College, yep. <laughs> I was in the College of Ag, um very involved in a lot of a um, lot of the the clubs there and within the Animal Science department like I said, I was in meat science, which for those that don't know, a lot of people don't know what meat science no, is, I'm, but
0: I'm all new. Here, yeah. So um, the
1: specific, the specifics of that would be really the, the science behind animal proteins and, and uh, the quality behind them and, and how we influence quality of them. So how do, how do we produce a good steak ultimately? Yeah. And so that relationship between the live animal and getting to the meat product. So really neat stuff. Um, you know, probably in those days as a college student, thought I'd end up more in, in the product uh, side of things and, sure. and working in the industry in that manner. But um, in 2010, when I graduated, I um I graduated in May and I, I kind of had like a pay the bills job that summer. Yeah. I, I was just, you know, kind of tinkering around. It actually was affiliated with the Kentucky Cattlemen's Association. And um I, uh, I got a call from a professor and she said, Hey, somebody's just retired from the Alabama Cattlemen Association. I really think you need to, you you need to think about this job. And it was in Montgomery. I was like, Oh yeah, that, okay. That sounds good. Let me check into it. And I got hired there in, in 2010. And, um, the work I was doing was really in the area of, uh, educating consumers, um, promoting our product beef and, and working in that area. And, um, you know, have been at the association ever since. And if anybody's ever been in the association world, here's how it goes, Brian. You start off and if you stay long enough, you're going to end up doing a lot of different things because people come and go and, and, you know, small staffs generally, which is how we are. And gaps need to be filled and and life goes on. And so I ended up, um, you know, doing a lot of different things. And as I mentioned earlier, my predecessor, uh, Dr. Billy Powell, he was there for over 30 years. Um, we're the, we're one of the only associations in the country. I'm, I'm only the third exec for our association, which, which is un, unheard of. So yeah. Dr. Powell announced his retirement and um, the board, uh, they voted and promoted me in, into the position of exec. And so I've been in that position since. So management, uh, governmental affairs, um, just for a little personal, my husband and I, I mentioned we live in Notosolga. So yeah. our farm is there. We have a commercial cow-calf operation. Uh, we do hay production, um, and then my husband, he's, uh, he's a general contractor, um, on the commercial side. He grew up, uh, on a farm in the wiregrass area. Okay. And so, um, he's from a row crop and cattle farm. And, um, so we've started our own farm in Noda We've got two kids that we enjoy raising yeah. on the land. And, um, so I'm, I'm in cattle basically 24 seven of my yeah. life at this point. So, but, uh, very rewarding, um, I love the association. I, I love the people we get to represent and the issues we work on. You know, they're not always easy, but, um, you know, it, it. It it's a great thing to work on because you know that you're affecting good people and yeah. that you're trying to help the people that are producing our food. Yeah. And, and that, you know, that's that's kind of the what gets me up in the morning thing. Yeah. Probably more than you want to know. But. No,
0: that's exactly right. I, I mean, I'm always interested, in, one, in hearing people's stories because people's stories, typically we've found ties into what they do and why they do it. Yeah. It just does. And and so I always find that interesting. And then figuring out, you know, specifically um, how, you know, how you got it to be uh, in, in the Cattlemen's Association. So I think that's good. And, um, you know, to be able to hear that it's just something that pumps through your veins and you're passionate yeah. about, I um, I have the privilege of having one of those jobs as well. So it's special and we're, really we're lucky to be able to do that. It is. We don't make widgets. We actually believe in what we do. So yeah, <laughs> I tell my team that every single week we do our all staff meeting and we pray and just say, thank you for letting us do this for a living, right? Absolutely. Rather than making wedges. Not that there's anything wrong with that. Yeah. So Alabama Cattlemen's Association, um, what are some of the things that you guys uh, do? I mean, obviously it's an association. You represent yeah. dues-paying members mm-hmm. and so on and so forth. So yeah. tell us a little bit about the association.
1: Yeah, I'll try not to get into too many weeds because yeah. um, we, we do have multiple arms to our association. Yeah. Um, if you look across the country, And go Cattlemen's Association across the state. State, we're we're pretty unique in in how we were set up. Um, We were set up in 1944. um, Really rich uh, history. I mentioned that we've only had two executive vice presidents before me. The original one was Ham Wilson, and then Dr. Billy Powell, and 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 now me. And um, that that's allowed for a lot of um, consistency and leadership, and just you know, it's really paid dividends, I think, over the years because association has, I mean, it's been as big as the largest state cattlemen's association in the entire country, which yeah. I don't think a lot of people, when they think of Alabama, they would think, oh, well, they have the largest cattlemen's association. What state yeah. would you think of?
0: Texas. Yeah. For sure. Everybody. Yeah. So, yeah.
1: but we've been able to maintain a, a top three membership. We represent over uh, 10,000. Last year, we, we ended the year at 10,283 members across wow. all 67 counties. And so um, so we've got, uh, you know, we the vast majority of our membership are, you know, you used the word independent farmers earlier uh, when we were talking about getting ready for this. Um, All of our guys are independent farmers. Um, They may uh, raise cattle full time. They may um, have a, a job in town and have cattle on the side or as a second job, <laughs> yeah. which it is, um, or you know what, they may just support the fact that, you know, I get to live in this country and eat steak and beef whenever I want to. And yeah. I want to make sure that those folks are in business to produce it. So you don't have to own cattle to be a part of our association, but we are a trade organization um, as you mentioned. And so we, you know, if you're a dues paying member, you know, the, the reason for that, you know, you're going to pay dues, you're going to be a member, Um, be involved in your county organization, hopefully Um, receive, uh, you know, our magazine, we do a monthly publication. And then we've got uh, the governmental affairs that, that works on behalf of our producers and and our policy uh, movement. And so, um, so that's kind of like one arm. All right. And then under the roof, under the house, as I call it, um, we've got the arm that does the promotion, which is where I started. And so that's our beef promotion. That's really, if you've ever heard of beef, it's what's for dinner. Yeah. Okay, that so so we we promote that. Um, and is that, that
0: part of the checkoff? Program? It's done
1: through the beef checkoff program, okay. and so um, so our staff we basically take you know that that national plug line beef. It's yeah. what's for dinner, and our job is to really insert it and inject it into yeah. Alabama consumers. Sure. And so that's um, a big piece of uh, of what we do. And then um, the other large arm that we have is our foundation, and so we have okay. a foundation that was developed. We have a vanity tag like a lot of yeah groups do. And it's grown a lot. Um, exciting thing is, uh, we're about to award scholarships for the year and we're doing over $105,000 this year Wow! to young people. Yeah. And you know, that, that's something I can remember when we were only able to able to do 50,000, it yeah. wasn't that long ago. So we have seen a yeah. lot of growth in that area. Are they area. all going to Auburn? No, no, they're not. You know, I was looking through the list the other day. We've got kids going, you know, they're they're going all over the place. It's amazing what these kids are going to do. And, you know, we support scholarships for kids going to trade school and, you know, four year institutions, community colleges. We've got one for kids going in agricultural law, rural medicine. I mean, we we really try to cover the gamut and try to help these people that are going to be influential, hopefully at the rural level, which is where, you know, we feel like is our bread and butter. And so, um, so, so that's, that's kind of the main arms of the Alabama Cattlemen Association. And, um, and so I, I guess, you know, anybody can get on our website and kind of see the, the nooks and crannies, but in an effort to stay out of the weeds, that's, that's the gist of it. Yeah,
0: no, that makes a lot of sense. And so like, I don't want to, so this has been my experience being a guy who works in news and then looks down at Montgomery and the things that go on in Montgomery. And so, you know, lobbying government affairs, it's almost like this necessary evil that exists, mm. you know? Yeah. Um but what I've seen from a lot of associations, and, and hopefully you'll be able to explain how you're different, is um, take the BCA or whatever. Um, they take money from their dues-paying members that are the independent people. So we'll say in the business community, the NFIB or BCA or whoever takes money from small business owner, uh, tons and tons and tons and tons of small business owners that creates this pile of money. And they use that pile of money to kind of do the bidding for the big corporations in the industry rather than for the independent people that paid their dues, if that makes sense. And so I've talked to some people in the cattle space that have kind of said that same thing. What, I mean, what do you, what would you say to that as far as what you guys do, you know, protecting, you know, the independent cattlemen versus the, the big corporations? Because big corporations, they swing a huge stick. Um, and, and again, look, just looking at the, the BCA and you look in that community, I mean, it's, it's, it's unfortunate, but that's kind of what happens. And then what ends up happening is that, you know, not, not enough gets done either in DC or Montgomery or wherever that association is. And they go back to their dues paying members and they're like, Hey, we know we didn't get much done, but imagine how bad it would have been if you didn't pay your dues. Right. So like where, how do you guys function? Cause there's a million associations. You've got the AA, you've got the BCA, you've got alpha, you've got, I mean, there's so many. Yeah. And so not that there, it's not a broad brush that you can get all of them with, but mm-hmm. I've seen that. And I just wanted to kind of add you are the first, association head that I've spoken oh. with and just wanted to <laughs> ask your thoughts on that.
1: Yeah. You know, and we work with all those folks. I've got friends that work in all those associations. What, what I can speak to for the ACA is that um, the, if you look across all those 10,000 plus members um, let me take one step back. All right. You mentioned the poultry industry at the very sure. beginning of this. And you know, in, when you look at the poultry industry, they're what we call vertically integrated. Mm-hmm. Okay. It, it's a top down approach. And in the farmer, basically does, you know, as a poultry, uh, as the integrator says, these are the rules and these are what we're yeah. going to do, right? We're, we're pretty familiar with that. Cattle industry has allowed itself, thankfully, to remain fairly independent. Um, now, we still have issues downstream, as I call it, at the yeah. packer level. There, you know, I can remember being in grad school when we, when we went from, uh, the announcement was made, six of the largest packers down to four. It was a huge deal. I mean, I, I remember yeah. sitting in my graduate school office when that happened and you think about it and you say, well, what are the repercussions of that? Well, it, it goes back to competition in the marketplace. You must have competition in the marketplace because in agriculture, you're selling a, a commodity. In our yeah. case, we sell cattle by the pound. Yeah. And if you don't have competition bidding on those animals by the pound, then you're at the mercy of, the, of your buyer, right? Sure. And so, you know, our focus, and I, I will shout this from the mountaintop our focus is and always is what are these policies doing to affect mainly the cow-calf producer, which is a majority of our membership. We're kind yeah. of the beginning of the food chain. Yeah. So most of our folks, they have mama cow herds, they have a calf every year, they sell that calf, and it goes on down the stream yeah. to, to the packing plant. And so we represent mainly cow-calf producers, what we call stocker operators. Mm-hmm. Um, and those are going to be uh, folks in the industry that are buying lighter weight calves and typically grazing or feeding them until they're ready to go to the feed yard in the Midwest. Okay, uh, We've got a lot of that in the state as well and kind of across the southeast. Um, and, and then, of course, we have a, a large number of what we call seed stock producers, which is the very, very beginning of the chain. They produce bulls. Yeah. Okay. They're, they're in the business of producing bulls and, and uh, purebred females. And so that makes up, that encompasses the majority of our membership. And if you go and poll those types of producers, we generally have, or there's a lot of times that we have a different thought process or a different policy position than say somebody that lives in Texas or Nebraska, yeah. whatever it may be. And so I can say at the state level when we're in Montgomery in our yeah. state house, which gosh, it's just a lot easier to work in our—I can't believe I'm saying that—in our state house than yeah. like trying to get things done in DC. Oh, I can oh my gosh, what yeah. a drudge! I mean, talk about turning your wheels. And so, are things at the state level that we focus on? You know, we want to eliminate red tape wherever possible, right? Yeah. Biggest thing in agriculture is—is is the regulatory burdens are are just. You just cringe sometimes when you start thinking about it. And so um, at the state level, which we're fortunate in Alabama, we haven't had a lot of the, a lot of things you hear about in other states that are kind of matriculating in. We're trying to ward those off at the state level. We, you know, some of those issues really, you know, like you've probably researched a little bit on like Prop 12 in California and some of the decisions that are being made maybe in other segments of agriculture. We want to keep all that out of, out of Alabama. Yeah. We want our folks to be able to raise cattle on the land that they own, protect their private property rights, and give them the ability if to market their cattle how they want, to raise their cattle, obviously within how yeah. they want to, and be able to do that in, with an independent spirit. Because ultimately, that's that's what our members are able to do, and that's what we want to keep in place for them. So um, that that's a large answer and kind of covers a. Maybe a a, a chunk of our industry, Um, but it's not always easy to determine where you are on these policy issues. But we have a policy book and we've got a group of leaders that are involved. And I mean, we, you know, whatever's in that policy book, it's it's not what I say. I mean, our members make the decision and they vote on it and then we go and carry it out. So maybe like a real world example so going into this session we're about to start in a couple of weeks Okay. so one thing that you know we feel like would really help our guys last few years we've seen crazy increase in cost of inputs that's okay. th- that really affects the bottom line especially when you're trying to sell animals per pound
0: what is cost of input
1: input so your fertilizer cost your yep. material okay. cost your feed cost yeah. all these things to raise that animal cuz ultimately we're raising cattle yeah and um, Alabama, luckily, we've got a lot of um, agricultural tax exemptions. But one area that we found that is not currently in the ag exemptions is um, on fencing materials. Okay. Well, you can't have cattle Without a
0: fence. <laughs> if
1: you don't run fence. <laughs> and so, um, or you're going to have a lot of problems. So. Yeah. Um, So we're, you know, we, we're looking at Senator Williams, uh, it's actually pre-filed SB6, but um, we're, we're looking to try to get a tax exemption on fencing materials for livestock production. We feel like, you know, that's something that can help our guys bottom line. Um, So, you know, I guess that's one example. Um, Yeah, that's great. A few years ago, we, we passed a bill that, um, you know, we hear a lot about uh, lab grown meat and cell cultured meat and all these things trying to claim that they're beef. And they're not, yeah. Um, so we, you know, we went into the the language in the cost or in the code of Alabama code section and cleaned it up to say, you know what, you cannot falsely label that product if it's lab if it's lab grown, it's yeah. not beef. Don't call it beef. And so yeah. in Alabama, you can't put a label on it that says beef if it's not raised, you know, grown from an animal raised in a pasture and. Yeah. So, and that's to protect our consumers. We want them to know what product they're buying. Yeah. So hopefully that helps a little bit. No, that
0: absolutely does. And, And that is the question because, I mean, you can say it right there. Like you're literally trying to pass legislation that's going to give a tax break to people on fences. That's obviously positive. That's, you know, so something that's very tangible, something that's very simple. It's not something Maybe. that yeah, we'll <laughs> see, um, but yeah, that that's great, and and that is I this has just always been a question I've always had, and you just happen to be the first association head that's walked in here, so you you got to answer for me. Um, and and everyone's like I said, everyone's going to be different, and mm-hmm. so um, I'm glad to hear that. Let's talk um the museum. I've heard about mm-hmm. it. Um, I saw I looked it up a little bit before the interview. Um, talk about that. What is what is the museum? How did that come about? Yeah. Where, where, where can people go to oh, visit? Oh, gosh.
1: Well, first, you need to come. Yeah. <laughs> Do you have kids? I have seven. Okay. You need to bring the whole lot down. Okay. Um, they'll, they'll enjoy it no matter what they age. The museum is a special place. It's actually in the basement of our building, so and you actually enter the basement of our building. Okay. Um, so we're we're located at uh, Bainbridge and Adams in downtown, Okay, two blocks from the Capitol. And the museum, um, it was originally built in the mid-1990s, and it's a children's educational museum about the beef cattle industry. And mm. so it's our chance for people that don't grow up on a farm to come and experience and learn about what we do as yeah. an, in a, as an industry. And so, um, it's a really, it's neat. Um, kids of all ages like it. Um, originally it was built and targeted for fourth graders because yeah. of Alabama history, um, field trip when they yeah. come downtown but over the years it's grown and um, now we it's international. I mean we have people that visit from England and from Australia and wow. they find their way to the to the museum. Um, we did a renovation on it in 2019 and just luckily we got that done just in time before the pandemic hit. Um, so it's uh, probably changed a good bit since that time just because, there just doesn't seem to be as many field trips and stuff yeah. as maybe we had pre-pandemic.
0: Do you get a lot of homeschoolers?
1: We have a lot of homeschool groups. We're
0: seven kids. I probably homeschool. I do. So yeah. so
1: we get a lot of homeschool groups. Um, we get a lot of daycare groups. We get a lot of folks that are just um, stopping in Montgomery on the way to the beach or yeah. up to Huntsville. Um, but it's really become an attraction. And, um, you know, it's, it's just our way. It's free. Yeah. most importantly yeah. I, I can't my forget that yeah. it's free um we're open monday to friday um from 8 to 4:30 we close 12 to 1 but okay. uh, we just produced a new video to uh, advertise about sure. the museum and where
0: but, can people see that i'll try and put it in my notes here well then. i'll
1: have to send it to you okay. we, we haven't quite got it launched it, it just came okay. out of production um but that's something that we uh, didn't do um, uh, because we hit the pandemic right after we did renovation, yeah. but we're trying to get the word out about sure. it. So maybe school districts, um, they will be agreeable to start, start coming back. And, um, you know, it's just our way of, of educating another, another I mean, way to educate, which is important.
0: You have to pull people into the industry from somewhere. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and I mean, I could see that my children going and being like, wow, this is, and if they have a knack for it, then wanting to go to Auburn or whatever, and learning about yeah. that, maybe find themselves, you know, moving that way as a career. And it's like, the same thing has happened in the trades. Mm-hmm. Right? Everyone thought that you had to have a four year, a six year degree, or a doctorate or whatever, and you know, the better education and, and again, education's you know, is is an absolute must.
1: Paramount. Paramount.
0: Sure. And but everyone, like my dad always taught me, you gotta have a four year degree. The only way you're gonna get a job is you have a four-year degree. You gotta even have you even basket weaving, yep. right? <laughs> we, same 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 era yep. we grew up in. And so yep. because at that time that was a really big thing. Well, now everyone's pursuing these four-year degrees, very mechanically minded, hands-on people Mm -hmm. who can't even sit still in a classroom are forcing themselves to get $200,000 in debt to go to school to do that when they probably should have went into HVAC or electrical or plumbing and and been making tons of money with no student debt. And I think, um, and then what we're seeing now is because everybody did that, they're like, you can't find a plumber. You can't find a good electrician. and. And I think the the agricultural business would I, I assume um, could potentially head that direction because it's a, it's not trade but it's more hands-on it's more it,
1: it it's basically it's a very skilled trade yeah. um, but farm labor is a huge huge uh, topic of interest for us and a challenge for us um if you didn't grow up on a farm um and you've got somebody that you hire to go to work on on your farm to help you yeah it's really tough to put them in this equipment that that we're buying to have on our farms to be able to do what we do. Um, this equipment it's high tech, it's expensive and you need, you need somebody with a little bit of knowledge before you stick them behind the wheel. Um, or even cattle, you know, just working cattle. First, you've got the safety factor. Um, I I sure don't want my help to get run over as, as they're quote helping me. Um, you've got the safety of the, of the animals, um, because they're, they're worth money. Um, and, and, and so just general awareness. Um, and and so, yeah, we deal with a lot of those same challenges and I agree wholeheartedly. So my dad was a, he owns an air conditioning company. And so yeah. I, I'm from a trade family myself yeah. and my dad's still push. He's like, yeah. you got to go to college. I'm like, <laughs> look at you. So, uh, but it's nice that we're coming back around. Yeah. He, he about, uh, he, I mentioned one day, so our son is um, he's about to turn eight and he's really mechanically minded, yeah. uh, really into equipment and stuff. And I just kind of, offhandedly mentioned, I was like, yeah, you know, if he wants to go to trade school, great. And my dad was like, what? No. You know, it's just that yeah. mindset. I yeah. think that our parents generation, you know, cause it was yeah. so important to go to college because yeah. they didn't get to.
0: Well, and it used to be so, you know, rigid. Like if you have a four year degree, you can get this job that pays this much. Mm-hmm. Well, now people have, you know, wisened up. If you're the CEO of a company or you're a chief operations officer, chief of staff, and you're hiring people, you don't even look and see what their degree is like. What did they get done at their last job? Yeah. Did, tell, were they excellent or were they not?
1: Tell me what you can do. Exactly. Can you work hard? Yeah. You know, do you have a passion? You know, yeah. I always tell people, give me somebody that can work hard and has a passion for what we're trying to do. Yeah, we'll we'll handle the rest, and I'm sure yep. you feel the same way.
0: I have no idea who has a degree in my company and who doesn't. Never look. Never <laughs> part of the hiring process. So I think that and I don't have a degree. So there you go. <laughs> Well, good stuff. Um, so the museum, one of the things I'll, I'll try and do once you get the video out, maybe we'll do an article on it. Um, I'll get you in touch with Erica. She will love the museum. Yeah,
1: that'd be great. Um,
0: and uh, she's our uh, agricultural expert.
1: Okay, um, great.
0: And she she's a does a wide variety of things that she's an expert on, but she writes all of our agricultural stuff. Okay. So that'll be good. And then we'll get the video out there. And then if, it, if you get it in time before this publishes, I think it's will publish in a couple of weeks. We'll get that out there too. So, Perfect. Good stuff. Thank you. Well, I know where my wife is going to be, we're going to go check out the museum. I'm, Come I'm, check it out. I'm it's confi- a lot of fun. I'm confident <laughs> <laughs> if you see seven kids running around that look just like this, they're mine. I so. know. <laughs> All right. Um, I guess to, to finish it out, um, wanted to just ask a couple policy questions. Okay. Like I said, I have friends that do this and mm-hmm. they're like, Hey, it would be great if you could ask and just kind of see where they stand on this, that, or the sure. other thing. And so is in, and, and I know some of the state associations are subsidiaries of National? Are you guys the subsidiary of the NCBA, the National Cattlemen's Beef Association? Or are you yeah. guys separate?
1: We're state affiliate. State affiliate. Um, we okay. are, so we're actually heading to their annual meeting next week. Okay. Um, but we operate independently of them. But we sure. are state affiliate. Okay, I
0: didn't mm-hmm. know that. I'm like I'm. Googling as I'm researching yeah, all this stuff. Yeah. Okay. So um, one thing, and it sounds like just based on the conversation we have, you would be in favor of it, but um, mandatory county, uh, or excuse me, country of origin label. Um, Past legislation to require all beef sold in grocery stores to be labeled as to where the animal was born, raised, slaughtered, and processed. Uh, he says this will enable consumers to choose to buy USA beef, and doing so will increase demand for USA cattle. Uh, and even further, you could go in Alabama beef mm-hmm. on the label. But where, where are you guys on that?
1: So our policy position on cool uh, short-term country yeah. of origin origin labeling is is voluntary cool. Yeah. And so we we had M cool, which is mandatory country of origin labeling. Mm-hmm. Um, it would have been back. Um, I'm trying to think. I, I believe it started when I was still in grad school, and then early on in my career with ACA, we had it, and then it and then it went away, and our position on that is voluntary because we all know how the government operates and how they do things. It's not always the best or the most efficient. Um, And so the label that they were putting on it is like a black and white with that just, it's just stamped. It has no pretty USA flag or anything like that. And so our position is that if, if a producer wants to produce something that has that label on it, yeah, that, that should be a volu- that should be a market driven voluntary thing that they do, and and they have the ability to do that. We have a lot of producers that produce what we call uh, direct to consumer yeah. in the state, and yeah. and they sh- certainly can put that on there. Yeah. Now, um, one one thing I always like to mention when we're talking about MCOOL, especially at the um, retail level, and so you walk into the grocery store and you're looking at the meat case and you're you're trying to decide, okay, am I going to do um, a ribeye tonight or, you know, maybe some ribs, whatever it may be. The vast majority of the product sitting in that retail case is raised and harvested right here in the United States. Yeah. Um, food service, which is your restaurants and stuff, that's where you may see more of, of your imported product. Yeah. Um, but the vast majority of imported product that wouldn't have that USA label on it, no matter what, it is uh, in the form of ground product. Um, I always say that ground beef is the chicken nugget of the, of the cattle industry of the beef industry. Um, we gotta have it and we, we eat a lot of it and we produce a lot of it. And with the way that we, we raise cattle and that we raise cattle that are, um, they're well marbled, they taste good, but they do have some fat on them. And so to keep up with the demand to be able to produce enough ground beef that is, um, economical so Mm -hmm. that you and I, you can buy it for your family of nine and I can buy it for my family of four. Um, we do import what we call trim from, uh, Australia is the main one. Um, and so that is just brought in and trim is just going to be lean, okay, very lean meat. That's, that's blended with that fat that we have and also lean that we produce. And it is, um, that's, that's, that's producing different fat to lean ratios of ground beef. So like you see 85, 15, you may see 80, 10, that sort of thing. Um, If we cut off importing those products to blend and make that ground beef, we, we would likely be in a position where we were taking a beef carcass and where we are right now cutting steaks to produce a steak to sell at, you know, 15, 16, 99 a pound. We wouldn't want to get a, get ourselves in a position where we're having to grind that to sell it at yeah. four ninety nine a pound. Yeah. And so we've got some we've that's a complex issue, and we get a lot sure. of questions about cool. Yeah. Um. But our position is voluntary cool, and um, it's complex, and I'm always happy to talk through that with producers. Yeah. It's also a polarizing topic. I'll be very yeah. upfront with you, um. But but when we had M cool in place, at that point I was actually working with. Re- independent real retailers in the state of Alabama. And man, I can remember Brian, they, they would be asking me, Hey, what's going on with this? And so I'd be sending them the information. Hey, here's what you have to do to be compliant and to follow these federal regs. They spent so much money. And these are independent, small retailer establishments. Yeah. They spent so much money to get compliant. And then it spits out a label that has, it, it's tiny. It's, yeah. it's like the general consumer, they're going to walk up and you know how it is. You're, you're yeah. buying on price. Yeah, you know, I, I know there's a segment out there that wants to be able to have that label, but in terms of commodity product, it it's tough to justify that added cost. I guess.
0: Sure, and I think the other one, um, and this wasn't something that he brought up necessarily, mm-hmm. just me as a consumer. Sure. Is if 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 they voluntarily label. Mm-hmm. How do we know? Is there is there anything that's put in place that it's like? I mean, for instance, like is this even beef? <laughs> but but more specifically to this question, uh-huh. um, okay, it says this is American made. Mm-hmm. What is that? Does it did it come in from Brazil and they packaged it here, or like is there anything that's in place there? Like kind of from if it says America, does that mean that it is? Or
1: so there is actually rulemaking in place right this second um, because it's been identified that there there were I'm gonna call them workarounds, um, yeah. which which. USDA needs to tighten up. FSIS, so Food yeah. Safety Inspection Service under the United States Department of Agriculture regulates meat products, yeah. okay, just for the consumers out there listening to this. Um, FDA handles food products, so yeah. meat is up under FSIS. Okay. And there's a workaround right now in the current language, and, and yes, there are workarounds where you can, if you um, import in, let's say— um, a product and then repackage it, then yes, with the workaround, you can put that. And so we, we absolutely want that cleaned up. That is, that's false labeling. That's not fair to the consumer. When you walk up, you should know exactly what's, what's in there and credit to national cattlemen's. They, they really were at the forefront with FSIS of kind of figuring that out. And we've, we've been, you know, supportive and and we, we do some work in DC as well. Um, But, but yeah, that's something that needs to get uh, tightened up because yeah. that should have never that should never happen. Yeah. You know how it goes with loss. Sometimes yeah. I was going to say
0: there's always some. There's there always waiting. something. Yeah. I know
1: it. It, it, it feels like thing. that. It, yep. it is.
0: All right. Um, next question. I've only got five, so don't worry. I'm not going to. Oh, it's all, all
1: good. This is. I mean, I take questions <laughs> all the time. <laughs> no.
0: So require packers to compete for their cattle, and so this falls mm-hmm. under packers have thinned the industry's price discovery market, the cash market mm-hmm. by shifting. Cattle purchases out of the cash market into unpriced forward contracts, known as formula contracts. To reverse this, packers must be required to purchase at least half their weekly cattle needs from the cash market, and forward contracts that do not contain a firm-based price must be prohibited. Is their thoughts? What do you What do you say about the forward contracts and?
1: yeah we, boy we've spent a lot of time we could we could do a whole podcast on this <laughs> <laughs> well, i'm
0: thinking i'm like this might be this is fun
1: oh gosh so um we spent a we've spent a lot of time in here uh, especially in 2020 and 2021 um when covid hit the market the cattle market crashed yeah um it it crashed um as we refer to them around the office as those were dark times yeah um i don't know if you know but the cattle market's up and has been for about a year now. It's very nice, but yeah. um, price discovery, you've got to yeah. have it. We talked about earlier, you, you need co- competition. You need yeah. competitive bidding on your cattle yeah. and we need a cash market. Um, this is a very complex conversation that I can't talk about in, in one answer, yeah. but um, our position on this is that we firmly believe that there needs to be cash, uh, cash um, bidding out there that we need competitive bidding on our cattle and that formula cattle do not need to take up the entire space of bidding on cattle. Yeah. It creates it it creates basically a you know a segment of cattle, a large segment of cattle that the prices are already determined. Now, uh, I wanna also iterate that it's very important that we have the freedom to market our cattle how we want and get get rewarded for the genetics we're putting in our cattle. For the improvements we're making uh, in our in our weight gain and our calves and the nutrition plans that we're doing, so if right. I'm putting in extra effort, I should be rewarded for that. Uh, agree, 100%. absolutely. So, but the cash market is is very important. And through some of the um, I'll say uh, tough parts of that conversation, especially 2020, 2021, um, we were supportive of of <laughs> changes that would help that situation. Um, That was a very, there were, you were either on one side or the other across the industry, really tough topic. But um, the good thing, though, and I think this is important for a lot of our members to know, one thing that's really changed in the last 10 years in our industry, that's been good for the cow-calf sector. 10 years ago, there was absolutely no safety net available or tool, what we call a risk management tool, for a cattleman to go out at the cow-calf level and purchase to basically create a price safety net for his animals. Yeah. And so to kind of, I guess, bring that down to the level, if you're not in the industry, Brian, that what we are saying there is if you went to market tomorrow and sold your cattle, there's nothing you could purchase that would be affordable or make sense for you to get to just make sure that if the market crashed that day or wasn't having a good day, you'd have that insurance essentially. Yeah. There's been some changes in what we call the livestock uh, risk management program, uh, which it's a government program. Which we, you know, you gotta you walk that fine line. You yeah. you you need government, but you yeah. don't need government all the time. But in this case, um, livestock risk protection (LRP) as we call it, is is become a very valuable tool for our folks to be able to utilize. And all it does is is give us that safety net if the market is not good on the day that we go to sell with those animals you know and again it's your choice if you want to buy it or not yeah. if you want to float out there and and not have it and take it, have that risk yeah that's that's on you cuz you're an independent producer yeah but if you're somebody that wants to try to mitigate risk you can now take advantage of that and there's there was changes in that language that has allowed our producers even if you only own one head you yeah. can buy lrp to be able to create that and have that risk management for your program. So that, that's that been very important and something that, you know, I think going forward we won't maybe have the volatility. That That's really all we're trying to do is trying to mitigate volatility in the marketplace yeah. because you never know what's going to affect the cattle market. It could be something that's happening across – across the Atlantic Ocean. It could be yeah. something that's happening in commodity prices, like the price of corn. It could be the latest USDA report that comes out that yeah. says, this is how many cattle we have on feed. So we've got a lot of parameters there. You know, we've had, you know, one of the big plants caught on fire. It's like, yeah. are you kidding me? You know, yeah. we're sitting here and all of a sudden, we're again, we're at the mercy of the market here. Yeah. And so so we we are looking for ways to create tools for our folks to protect themselves. Because I think that's the best thing that, yeah. excuse me, I don't go on what I think. We believe as an association, our policy supports this. What can we do to help these producers to put them in the best place to to raise their animals and be productive in the industry?
0: Yeah. I guess the, the, the people that aren't uh, appreciative of that are people who do put maybe a more specialty meat or they put more effort into it mm-hmm. uh, and they feel like <clears throat> maybe they can't sell it or is that...
1: I think, you know, the more you put into it, the more you get out of it. I mean, yeah. I certainly there's some, you know, there's, you've got times when maybe that's not true, but um, there is reward for what you put into your herd and what yeah. you're doing in this industry. Um, but we have to remember, we we represent a lot of different types of yeah. thought processes, but behind how do I raise this animal? Yeah, And so, um, and, and size has a lot to do with it. It yeah. really does. Um you don't have the leverage if you own 25 cows versus the producer that owns 500. It just is how it is. But we are getting to a point now today, we have more tools for that 25 head producer than we had 10, 15 years ago, which to me as Alabama cattlemen's association representing small producers, the average herd size is I think 35 cows in the state that that's improvement. And so that, That's the direction we want to keep going.
0: Okay, that's good. Prohibit mandatory radio frequency identification. So that's RFID ear tags. RFID ear tags are currently used by many producers as a value-added means of earning a premium in the marketplace. If RFID becomes mandatory, those premiums will disappear. The packers and the government want to increase the use of RFID. They should provide market incentives to encourage their use but in, in no instance should the government require their use as a condition for being a cattle producer.
1: That is all. Boy, you, you got all the good topics. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I've been talking a lot about this one lately because next week when we go to the uh, meeting for national Cattlemen's, um, we'll be voting no against a policy resolution for them. Okay. And um, because it says that we need to have, we call them EID electronic identification yeah. in all cattle and calves. That That's not the direction that we've been moving. We, We've, we've been moving. So the current, uh, animal disease traceability, ADT rule, yeah. it is, uh, related to, uh, mature cattle. So 18 months and older, those are the animals that, uh, generally are going to present the most risk within the cow herd of, of these diseases that we were trying yeah. to eliminate, or excuse me, you can't eliminate them, yeah. avoid or, or yeah. find and, and get it out of the herd. And so, um, you know, our position is, is, um, federal government, you are not going to sit here and tell us we have to do this and then not even pay for it. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, come on. Yeah. So um, so our position is A, if we're going to do EID and within the uh, animal disease traceability rule, A, it cannot slow down the speed of commerce because we, we move a tremendous amount of cattle in and out of this state a day. Hundreds of, if not thousands of truckloads of cattle. Okay. They're moving constantly across this country. Speed of commerce is is of utmost importance. Secondly, it is not the cost of this program is not going to be borne on the back of the cow calf producer. Yeah, we you know that that is something that we will just scream from the mountaintop. If we're going to do things that are being kind of driven from the the other side of the chain, as I like to say it, and it, it, it all flows downstream, and we're at the bottom of the stream here the cost cannot come back to the cow-calf producer. It yeah. should not cost the cow-calf producer an extra $2 a head to tag an animal to be compliant. Yeah, It either needs to be shared or there needs to be something in place that helps to where they don't bear that cost. And so yeah. that, that's been our position the whole time. Animal disease traceability is, is very important. If we don't have the ability to know animals that you know, need to be taken out of the herd or animals are sick, whatever it may be, you know, food safety is of utmost importance, but so we're supportive of animal disease traceability, but it needs to be reasonable and something yeah. that is economical, economically sound for the producer, specifically the cow calf producer that's going to get stuck doing this program to implement it, to get it all the way down the stream.
0: Yeah. Okay. Um, and, and again, this is me not knowing anything, the direction that the chicken house is I don't know if that's even what they're called in my head. They're called chicken houses. That's what I t- call them. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so make sure houses. chicken houses sure. Um, to where it got to be so big, like, you know, got to be so expensive because of all the requirements on the chicken house. So your margins are, you know, basically non-existent. And then if you don't do those modifications, then the person, you know, then the, then Tyson or whatever, the, the corporation will pull your contract and then you can't make your, what's already a high risk loan to buy this crazy chicken house with little margins. And so these people are basically like slaves to their chicken houses and mm-hmm. they have to do all these things that maybe they don't even agree with. And I've heard that the RFID things can kind of be the first step moving in that direction by making those mandatory um, versus it's like, look, we see the value in it. And, and by doing that, you actually get to sell your cattle for a premium if they do that. But then when you make it mandatory, then they'd lose their premium and then you're also moving into weird weird territory. So
1: we, We've got a lot of things that... You know, I think we're watching on the you know at the other end of the food chain, so to speak. Um, we're very concerned about the movement to vertical integration. I mean, yeah. we we do not want that to happen. We are independently minded folks, <laughs> yeah. uh, specifically my members, <laughs> and um, you know, and that's important. And, and the things that you brought up today, Brian, I would say are all very, um, they're very national type issues, yeah. and, and we certainly spend a lot of time there and. You know, we, we try to work in that area. It's tough, though, because yeah. it it is at the national level. Um, and you've got a lot of differing opinions on what should and shouldn't be done on those yeah. things. You've got a lot of drivers, whether it be from the packer level, the feed yard level, whatever it may be. Um, but, you know, there, there's a lot of things that concern us also at the state level. Um, you know, one thing that that we um, are having a lot of conversations about is just how do we keep land in agricultural production? Yeah. I mean, look around. Yeah. Every t- everywhere you turn, is turning into subdivisions, um, Amazon, yeah, uh, solar panels. You know, you you name it, and it's like, where where are we going to graze cattle? So that you know, if you say, hey, what's something in Alabama we need? to, I mean, like yeah. land and ag production is very. I mean that that's important. Young people getting involved and having the ability to enter the industry. You know, the amount of capital it takes to be able to do that. What can we, you know to me? The association has the ability to really make its mark on, on some some of these real state type issues sure. as well. And, and so we really spend time on both sides, but, yeah. But those are tough issues, what you're asking about. And they're yeah. boy, they're like they're just yeah. big, you know, they got a lot of layers to them, yeah.
0: So sure, um, isn't everything right? Um, yeah, I was gonna say, I have two more of those, <laughs> <laughs> so um no and that is interesting here because that's the whole reason 1819 exists though is because there is there's all this national talk there's all Mm -hmm. these national politics that's the big sexy thing is what's going on on fox news in alabama other states it might be cnn but Uh, in alabama yeah what's being said on fox news that's what everyone's tv is tuned into oh my gosh nancy Pelosi and vladimir putin are going to ruin our country and it's like no (laughs) like there's a lot going on here that we can actually do something about no one wants to pay attention to it and so I totally understand what you're saying about, hey, I mean, yeah, that stuff, we have to pay attention, but this, mm-hmm. and so that you is. got to
1: work in bo- in all of yeah, it, and it's, sure. it's a lot. It's it, You start talking about the issues. Boy, you can yeah. get down the rabbit hole quick. Yeah.
0: <laughs> all right, two more rabbit holes. Okay. Uh, reform, reform the beef checkoff program. So we talked about the beef checkoff program, yeah. and my understanding is it's like a dollar a head, and then it's another dollar when it goes to the packer or whatever. So it gets. Let me just read this and then. Uh, okay, yeah. Because I was pretending like I knew what I was talking about there for a second. I shouldn't do that. So reform the beef checkoff program. The beef checkoff should prohibit lobbying groups from receiving checkoff funds. And it should allow the promotion and advertisement of USA beef. From what I heard you saying, that is what you guys are using your checkoff dollars for is to promote the beef. It's what's for dinner mm-hmm. type of things. And sure. so it says currently the program informs consumers that beef is beef regardless of where it's produced or who produces it. So I think they're leaning more towards promoting USA beef. Mm-hmm um This commoditizes beef in the midst uh, in the minds of consumers and encourages them to simply seek the lowest cost beef. We kind of talked about this too, since they believe all beef is the same. As a result, the Checkoff lowers the value of USA beef. And then I think the other thing, as I had this conversation, was not only that, but like Checkoff dollars flowing more into lobbying rather into promotions. But let's go you know, as a one-two.
1: Yeah, uh, let me start on the lobbying piece first. Sure. I-, I can tell you from the standpoint, you know. If- You kind of come into our shop, all right? Yeah. The checkoff dollars that come in for us to utilize to promote beef, um, they sit in their own checking account. Yeah. And the time that I spend um, lobbying for the organization is not paid for by the beef checkoff. It's paid for by member dues. Yeah. Um, I mentioned we're an affiliate of National Cattlemen's Beef Association. Yeah. They, too, have a membership arm in D.C., and they do not use checkoff funds to lobby with. They have an office in Denver that handles the um the promotion and the beef it's what's for dinner yeah. content creation and that yeah. sort of thing. So our job, as I mentioned, is to take that and insert it into the Alabama consumer. And so I know there's a lot of producers out there that that really would like to see the national beef checkoff focus in on USA beef. Yeah. The way that the Act and Order was written as a part of the 1985 Farm Bill is that it it was written to promote beef yeah. to to people. You think about in the eighties, think about diet and stuff. Yeah. You know, at that time, red meat was getting attacked. I mean, it was the start of the yeah. attack on red meat. And so the idea at the time, I think, really was driven by we 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 got to get our message out there. Sure. And we need to be able to promote this product. And so I, I know that's the feeling of a lot of folks. I, I will say um, we we also have an Alabama state beef checkoff. So our producers, Brian, um, it's actually $2 that's deducted each sale of cattle, yeah. head, head of cattle. and it, and um, so we use our state dollars really to be able to expand what we're doing um, locally, and so we're able to develop youth programs. We're able to do production type research for on-farm improvement or, or be able to have tools available. Um, and and so we, and maybe it's because we're in Alabama, and, and yeah. we lo- we love our state. We're, yeah. we're localized type people, but yeah. we we spend a lot of time advocating and promoting beef, but it, you know, we, we talk a lot about Alabama beef too. Um, even though we don't produce a tremendous amount of product right here in the yeah. state lines. Um, so, but I, I understand the, um, some, some of the thoughts out there in the countryside. Yeah. I'm not naive to them. Yeah. Um, I can assure producers though, that in our shop and what we do, I'm very confident that if you were to come in and say, how hey, I want to see how this works. Um, Hey, look, we we're following the law and, and what we're supposed to do on these things. And we do not, there's a firewall in place and we do not cross it. Yeah. Um, those are two separate things. And okay. so, um, That's good. maybe it puts people at, at ease a little bit, but the beef checkoff has done tremendous work and has really provided a lot of not only promotion, but just, um, what I like to call reputation management in the industry. And what that yeah. is, is just, you know, let's say that there's this huge food safety scare. Okay, you probably remember everybody called it mad cow disease. Mm-hmm. Well, we call it BSE, bovine spongiform encephalopathy. That was a game changer in our industry. Yeah. And the checkoff helped activate the plan that helped helped keep the industry going a little bit. So consumer demand, when it, when it plummeted, because people were like, what is this? Yeah, You know, a, a plan was in place. And, and now today, if you hear about that, consumer demand doesn't even drop on beef. If if they hear about oh there's a case of BSE or mad cow diseases, it's yeah. called in the media. Um, so so there's a lot of good things being done. Is it perfect? No, pro, no program is that. Yeah. you can always pick things apart. But I would invite producers in Alabama. If you have questions about the beef checkoff, please call me. I always let folks know. Please call me. I will be glad to talk to you about the programs we are doing in our state and the people that do them and how much they cost. I mean that it, it's their dollars yeah. and, and we're putting them to work, producers. They work with us to put the plan together. We have a, a council that oversees uh, the marketing plan for that and the budgets and, and the money, you know, how it's spent. Yeah. So it's not just us coming up with these ideas figuring out how we're gonna promote beef. Um so and it, hey, if they want to get involved. Come one, come all.
0: Yeah, Uh, I
1: invite it. I really do. No, I I can tell. I'm pretty (laughs) passionate. So I started off the work I did for the cattlemen's originally. All all that was funded through Checkoff. So I'm I'm fairly passionate about the Checkoff because I've seen the the good work it can do. Yeah, yeah, that's
0: amazing. Good stuff. All right, last question. That's good because we're about to wrap up on time too. So it's perfect timing. Uh, It says reform cattle and beef trade policies. Uh, The U.S. imports more beef and cattle than it exports, resulting in a price depressing trade deficit quantity limitations, such as uh, through tariffs and tariff rate quotas are needed to give the domestic industry space to begin rebuilding its cattle herd that has been severely reduced due to both import pressure and widespread drought.
1: Drought for sure. Um, right now, the cattle herd is as low as it's, as it's been, I think, since the 50s. Um, I need to look. I, I can't remember if it's lower than it was in 2014, yeah. the, the last trim. So it's about a 10-year cycle yeah. <laughs> if you kind of look at the cattle cycle. Um, but import-export, you know, we, we touched a little bit on it with keeping up with that ground beef demand. Yeah. But, um, you know, if we're, we, we need to trade. Uh, trading is important in any ag commodity, and it's important in the beef cattle industry as well. So we not only trade cattle back and forth with Mexico and Canada, we also trade back and forth uh, products. And, you know, in the case of let's talk about exporting first. If we're going to export products to other countries, A, we shouldn't be penalized with any tariffs on it. Absolutely. Um, But, but countries want our, they want our product and they're willing to pay a premium for it. And so you take something like, um, you know, the classic example is like a beef tongue. You don't see a lot of beef tongues eaten in the United States, but in other countries they're willing to pay a ridiculous amount of money to get tongues. Well, that's also the case for like inside rounds, which is um, you know, product that normally would just get ground into beef, yeah. uh, ground beef in the United States, sold for, you know, four or five ninety nine a pound. Well, in other countries, they'll buy it for twelve ninety nine a pound because they can take it, and you know it's a really high end product for them. So there's definitely a balance there, um, and there are times that imports probably get higher than people are, you know, would would like like to see. But it's again, it's to keep up with demand of selling beef and selling beef to our consumers in the United States. So I guess this is my question for for folks that ask about this: Would you rather import a little more? knowing that you're exporting product to get a premium to be able to keep up with demand, or would you rather cut off exports and decrease price of what the cattle are worth in order to keep, in order to keep from having to import so much. So it's a little bit of a balance there. It's an act. Um, but, but, um, trade policies are important. They're really tough too. Boy, they're complex. Um, and there's, I do want to mention this talking about it. Um, we don't believe in the ability to import from any country. Yeah. Uh, most recently, uh, USDA announced that they were going to start importing from Paraguay. Yeah, absolutely so asinine. Yeah. Absolutely asinine. We 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 are against that. Um, they have shown time and time again that they uh, do not have a control on foot and mouth disease FMD, which yeah. is that's one of those things that keeps up that keeps me up at night. Yeah. We do not want FMD in this country. It will it it will crash what we do as a as a as a cattle industry.
0: You think here's my tinfoil hat. You ready? Okay. There's people like Bill Gates and these other people that don't want us to eat beef. They're crazy. And then, well, I'm <laughs> on the carnivore diet, so all I eat is beef. Okay, nice. Uh, yeah, I'm, i I you know, follow maybe. that
1: guy on X. Uh, uh.
0: There's a guy, Sean Baker, Doctor Sean. Yeah, yeah. Oh,
1: boy, man. Yeah. He loves it. <laughs> he does. <laughs>
0: Uh, I do it at the beginning of every year for either two or three months. Last last year I did it for 90 days. This year I'm going to do it for 60 days. And so, okay. That's great. Yep. Appreciate um, that. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I, trust me, I am sending a lot of money your guys' way based <laughs> off of my grocery bill. Thank you. Um, but uh, I do. I think that, that you know, and in, in it, it's all part of the, you know, this globalist centralization plan, and they don't want a seeding red meat. They don't. But it's because red meat's really good for you, I think. But I mean, I, again, I don't want to get too far out into conspiracy land. That's another podcast. Yeah, it is. <laughs> but um, it may be that, you know, that's one of their plans to bring uh, hand, foot, and mouth disease or whatever you call
1: it. Foot and mouth foot disease. Mouth yeah. Disease. So, so our kids, kids get hand. hand foot, I know people are always yeah. like, what? And I'm, all right. The kids get hand, foot, and mouth. My kids have had it. Yeah, There's This is foot and mouth disease. Different yeah. different deal, but um, catastrophic for the cattle industry. Sure. And, um, you know, gosh, i I sure hope not, I guess yeah. is my first response, but um, what we know, our assumption is that it's being used as a bargaining chip yeah. for something else to be traded, yeah. and it's a shame that the federal government is willing to bargain and leverage on the backs of the beef cattle producers in this country, Yeah, and I'll, I'll end it at that. <laughs>
0: That's a great way to end it. Well, this has been great. Uh, this has been kind of new um, territory, I think, for, for, for me and for our audience and stuff. And to be able to be educated on this stuff, I think this was great. Uh, answered a lot of questions. And uh, I know this will make its way through the, the, the cattle industry uh, in the state. Things that we do that are kind of hyper-specific like this have a way of doing that. And okay. so um, good stuff. Make sure you guys check out the museum. You got to do that. I will be doing that as well. Uh, Aaron Beasley, thank you so much for your time.
1: I appreciate it. Thank you. Awesome.
0: All right, guys, that'll wrap it up for today. Uh, again, go. Um, please become a member. Go to 1819news.com uh, today. Click the button, become a member. Membership start as little as $5 a month. Go do that. And as always, put your trust in God and keep your powder dry.